0: I'm spinning in circles and talking to myself Spinning in circles and talking to myself Welcome to a new spin on autism
1: Answers with host and international speaker and performer, Lynette Louise Besides working on
0: her doctorate in psychophysiology, Lynette has raised eight children, six adopted And four of them falling somewhere on the autism spectrum Laugh with her, cry with her, as she talks to both experts and parents and takes you through the often confusing, sometimes frustrating, sometimes overwhelming, but always fascinating world of autism.
1: Hello and welcome. This is a new spin on Autism Answers. I am Lynette Louise, your story teacher host, also known as the Brain Broad. And today is so full of information that we just got to get straight to it. So, okay, 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 we're not going to have a great guest giveaway because our guest today is great and she promised to give away, or at least I'm going to try and get her to. But do stay to the very end of the show where we will have stories from the road. Today's question, what do chemicals and epigenetics have to do with autism? Let's find out with today's guest who is the exactly correct person to ask that question of. You know, I have different styles to the show. I have the style of let's just sit and chat with other moms and see how it's going, and let's talk to people dealing with autism, and let's talk to celebrities who talk about autism and bring more light and attention to the show. And then I have the let's talk to bona fide experts out there in the world doing something, investigating trying to, um, you know, get us some tools to work with. And that's the kind of show we're going to have today. So I'm real, real excited to be chatting with this wonderful lady. Her name is Martha Hebert. She's um, an MD, a PhD. She's a pediatric neurologist, brain development researcher. She's been in the field of autism, studying it, working with it for decades, um, she's got, actually, she's the author of The Autism Revolution and many articles. Uh, works uh, out of Harvard, I believe. I'm going to check with her because we, just before the show, I said, okay, now, what would you particularly like me to highlight? And she has such an enormous resume, I can't remember most of what she said. So I'm going to let her complete some of her introduction. And let's just get straight to her. Hello, Martha, and thank you so much for
0: being here. My pleasure. My name is Herbert, not Hebert.
1: Well, thank you. <laughs> do you know that that's so beautiful because I do it all the time. It's become like a, a theme of the show. Oh, Lynette's going to mess up their name. I feel like John Travolta
0: here. No, seriously. It's a funny name. You would think it's really simple. And I wasn't even born with that name, but um, I got it when I was a kid. and Oh, um, interesting. It's amazing. And my father picked it out because it was simple. And actually, it isn't simple. It's amazing what you can do <laughs> with that name. Oh, that's interesting. So your family changed
1: their name at some point. Yeah,
0: I had a long Russian name.
1: Ah. Nobody could pronounce it. Okay. All right. Well, Herbert, my apologies. And do you prefer to be talked, spoken to as Dr. Herbert or Martha?
0: It doesn't matter. I mean, maybe people will like it better if it's Dr. Herbert, but I don't really care personally. All you right. Well, choose. let's
1: make, let's see. elevate the show, okay. Dr. Herbert. <laughs>
0: and,
1: all right. So the reason that I, I intro- Introduce myself to you and our show to you and, and asked you to be a part of it, and thank you so much. Um, was an article you wrote a long time ago, just recently, there's been this whole thing going on in the news about, oh my gosh, it's the environment causing autism. Yeah. And, um, you know, I found it amusing in, at some level because that's not new news, mm-hmm. of course. And that seems to happen in autism where things that people have been talking about for a long, long time, um, they circle back around and all of a sudden they're brand new because somebody new said it or some new news system picked it up. But it's also true of med- medicine anyways and of science anyways that we – we do this. We discover something and you know, two decades later we go, Oh look what's been discovered. Yeah. So um that's what brought me to you was this wonderful article you wrote a long time ago. So I'd love to touch on that just a tiny bit. Absolutely. And then awesome. And then just before we started recording, you mentioned some things that you would like to speak about and I was so excited because they're actually Fantastic, and, and I love that you want to hand out tools. So parents, please stay, listen, enjoy. You're going to get some tools today. So uh, let's talk about the environment and sort of your take on that whole subject of, geez, why didn't we already know this?
0: Well, I wrote this article in 2006 called Time to Get a Grip about autism and the environment. And I, it's online. It's on my website, MarthaHerbert.org, under publications, I think they still have it up on the Autism Society website because we published it in the Autism Advocate in this special issue on environment, which I co-edited. Uh, we had it, um, an environmental health uh, advisory board that put it together. had a lot of interesting stuff in it. I wrote the lead article saying, look, folks, you know, the numbers are going up. We don't know how much of the numbers are going up. And there's all these things in the environment that we really ought to be thinking about. And up until then, the press had been doing, oh, is it genes or is it vaccines? And if you say it's vaccines, you're crazy, so it must be genes. And I'm like, this is not the right argument. The argument is what's happening to our planet and what's it doing to us, you know. So I wrote that. And I've subsequently written other things. That one was in a popular style. I've written a number of things in popular styles. I've also written a paper which is a little bit more technical. It's also up on MarthaHerbert.org. Called It's about something I call environmentally vulnerable physiology because Jerry Dawson asked me from Speaks. She was in that, the chief scientific officer for several years at Speaks asked me to write an article on environment. And I said, well, look, there are a lot of people by now who are talking about environment. But in my opinion, environment, there are many, many, many things in the environment that could and probably do contribute to autism. And by the way, I don't like to use the cause word, because, and I'll explain why, I think it's usually a combination of a whole lot of things, and each one of the things is a contributor but for the most part, no one thing is a cause. It's not impossible. But for the most part, there's so much garbage that a lot of it contributes. Mm-hmm. So what I said is it's not that the environment or, for that matter, the gene directly causes the autism. Is that instead it triggers changes in the ways our body works. And those changes are the 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 near cause to autism. I mean, the the environment and the genes are the triggers, but what they do is they change the chemistry of the body, the immunology of the body, and the way the brain acts. And that's where the autism comes from. And the thing is, like there are a couple of different, there are a number of different pathways in our bodies, pathway meaning the way your body gets work done. It's like an assembly line kind of model where you put something in at one point and it goes through a whole series of steps or workflows. That's another thing you could call it. And many of these workflows, pathways, processes in our body can take hits from the environment, but it isn't just one thing. They can take hits from many, many things. So let's take the mitochondria and the mitochondria—that's a big word—but they are the little energy factories inside ourselves that convert sugar to energy. So there are furnaces, our powerhouses, and I explain this in chapter three of my book, *The Autism Revolution*, which is written at a very easy level. I wrote it with a professional journalist. So the mitochondria are unbelievably vulnerable to tens of thousands of environmental. Toxicants, to pharmaceutical agents to electromagnetic fields and radiation. And when they take a hit, they become inefficient. And when you're inefficient, you may feel tired. You may have a kid with low tone and this may be part of it or they're just drag around. But you really need to know that the nerve signals in the brain require an enormous amount of energy so that If the mitochondria have taken a hit, if the energy factories in our cells have taken a hit, that's going to impact everything but also the brain. And if the brain has less energy, it's not going to be able to handle complex things. It's going to poop out. So I think, really, that the behaviors that we define as autism, like Getting stuck in ruts doing repetitive and restricted behaviors, having a hard time reading faces, having a hard time keeping up with conversation, taking things literally, as well as the low tone and coordination problems may all, in many cases at least, have a contribution from a problem with the energy system. So the energy system is directly causing the problems, but the environment and in many cases, also genes, is triggering it. So, does that make sense? Oh yes,
1: it made perfect sense actually. Very. So, it's, it's almost like a systemic kind of situation where it's coming yeah. in and then becoming a part of the entire system. So,
0: when I was in, like, also before I wrote that environment article, I wrote another article uh, called "Autism a question, Colon: A Brain Disorder or a Disorder That Affects the Brain." So, what I'm saying here is the same thing. Impacts from genes or environment on the body change the, the molecular activities of the body, and that can affect the whole body, including the brain. And there are also things that it can affect other parts of the body, and then it feeds up to the brain, like you can have gut problems and the microbiomes, the little gut organisms that we all carry around in our guts can be unhealthy or unbalanced and that sends up different chemicals up to the brain the brain acts differently so it can be the whole system hit at the same time or some parts of the system and they in turn feed in and change the way the whole thing acts including the brain.
1: So when you're researching it and looking trying to, you know, make sense of this picture, do you mostly like look at the larger uh issues like say a social issue or a, um approach issues or eye contact or that kind of stuff or do you break down into like what I, when I work with autism, which to know about me, I I travel internationally and I work clinically and I give talks and that sort of thing. Um, and I work with autism using behavior and neurofeedback and um different things like that. And so one of the things that always fascinates me, and if I were to unplug and go and just research, <laughs> um, which is, you know, the little dream, uh, I think what I would want to figure out is why there is so much exact sameness in certain categories of movement, for example. Um, so do we do you break it down into, like, why did a certain group of autistic kids all use this particular arm motion. It's the same arm motion. They all look like they're doing the same dance from the same instinct. Um, It's almost like an old um, prehistoric movement that some of the the creatures used to make. And it's in the shoulders, and it's not just a flap, but it moves back in a certain way. And they're the same. It's like, it's, you know, how do they know to do the same movement? What's impacting? Do you break it down like that into those little kinds of things? Or do you stay in the more...
0: Uh, the larger issues. So there's what I'm doing now and what I'd really like to do, like you have the dream thing and so do I. Of course. (laughs) Um, So the last number of years I've been tied up with two very complicated studies that have finally finished, but I haven't finished analyzing the data. Um, One of them was a brain study, and one of them was actually looking at little babies who have older brothers or sisters with autism to see... What happens to them? Because we know, well, when I started the study, people were saying one out of eight younger siblings would develop autism, and that became one out of five. So um, we took very, very intensive measures. We did brain EEG, brainwave studies. We did stress measures. We, did, we collected poop, urine, blood spots, uh, saliva, And we did careful neuro exam, motor assessments, and a variety of other things. So it was extremely intensive. It was funded by the Department of Defense in the first round of their autism funding. So we got that money in 2008, and it was a very complicated study, really, really complicated. Um, The idea was that you're not born with autism stamped in you, but that it actually develops through a cascade of things, and that we would see problems in bodily measures and, and electrical measures way before we could see the behaviors. And that if that was true, then maybe we could do things at those early stages, particularly healthy things, that would help people not fall off that cliff and regress. And so, so far, you know, so that was like, that took me out for several years because it was so much work. Um... And looking at the data so far, like we are finding a couple of things. We're finding biochemical changes. Everybody's born with certain stress-type measures when they're born, because being born is stressful. But in most people it goes down, but in our autistic sample, it doesn't go down. Oh, the kids what I mean my autistic example is the kids who we three two and a half years later, determined had autism. We certainly couldn't right. tell at birth. But then we could go back and figure we divide the group up into who did and who didn't. And in between, because there was an in between group. And look at what's different. And we also have found things, even in the brains, at two weeks, that are, because we have, a, we have, a, we got a comparison group that are similar to what you see in school aged children with autism. So if we can really find, um, a profile here, of the really, really early vulnerability signs, we suspect that there are things that we could do. And the reason I say that is I have three clinician friends who have among them 1,500 patients who've been born into their pediatric practices. And if you look at the figures of 1 in 88 or whatever it is right now, um, you would expect that they should have at least 15, 20 kids with autism, but they have almost none. And they've just been doing health promoting, wellness oriented, maintaining the mother's vitamin D levels, thyroid levels, getting the toxins out of the house, getting the allergens out of the mother while she nurses, things like that, really basic, helpful things. And they're not using drugs, and they're not using things that could, have, that could cause risk to the baby down the line when they get older. They're just doing helpful things. And it's really interesting that they don't have hardly any autism. They have much less chronically ill children. They, they, they actually, one of my friends who was doing this, the first year she really practiced like this, she had so few sick kids in her practice she lost money because that's what pediatricians make money from is taking care of sick kids. And they weren't getting sick. So the next year she reconfigured so she had a lot more room for kids with autism and other chronic problems. So, you know, when I look at how these kids develop and how they went into autism, I think we could also see if we could cut it off at the pass. So whatever talents they have, that's great, but whatever sicknesses that make the immune system overly challenged and the gut system overly challenged, we could head that off, and then we wouldn 't have so many problems,
1: yeah, something comes to my mind when you 're describing it, and that 's really interesting about the pediatricians not having uh, children enough children that have autism that 's kind of interesting um, but if you 're approaching pregnancy and delivery and uh, early parenting with some with a professional who 's educating you about, you no, know, let's do it this healthy way, let's look at it this way, um, you know, let's use food, let's use nutrients, let's use, you're also educating the parent and changing the parent's mindset on how they're going to embrace and surround their child from the get-go. That's and
0: right. And
1: that's a piece. And huge the whole family. Yeah. yeah, and and even to the point of affection and, you know, attention to detail and, so, it's actually much bigger than just did they come up with the right vitamin pill. And I think that's one of our biggest problems in society is everybody wants the right, um, exact, you know, the, the pill or the, or yeah. let's take the cell phones away or whatever it is, take that one thing away mm-hmm. and it'll all go back to good. And it's much more
0: complex than that. You know, I can't tell you how happy I am to hear what you're saying. Oh yay. <laughs> I think it's so right on, so totally right on because, you know, <clears throat> it isn't, you know, if you look at the last 50 years, you know, I'm in a position and many other people are too, but, you know, because people know me as doing autism, I have all these people sending me their pet theories about the thing that's causing autism. And usually what you get is a graph and it says, look at this, the numbers went up. The use of whatever this thing is went up, and that must be the cause of autism. But after you get 15, 20, 25 of these, you're saying, like, wait a minute, maybe it isn't the one thing. Maybe there's something fundamentally messed up about the way we're living. And, you know, people at first, they just, I mean, I think people are really overwhelmed and they're busy and they just want, they just don't, they just want everything to go back to being okay. You know, so if they could just get that one thing fixed, then cool, then they can go back to doing whatever they do, watching TV and taking their kids to soccer games. But um, maybe that's not the problem. And this is a very difficult transition for a lot of people. I think you can sweeten it uh, in a lot of ways because a lot of the changes that we ask people to do are uh, actually fun. And if it's related to food, they're delicious and they're pretty. And it's actually a much more engaging, family-oriented way of living than going out and buying stuff and running around until you're exhausted. So I think there's actually a lot of hope in this process and message. But until you experience it, it just seems just like more stuff to do.
1: Right. You well, I mean, it, to do. yeah, it's human nature, right, to be resistant to learning something new every time I, uh, you know, every time I have to learn something about how to deal with a website or a, you know something that's so outside of what I thought I'd have to do by my age. Um, I'm there's a piece of me that's resistant, like, please, no, not another technology
0: to <laughs> right, <laughs> to exactly. figure out. And it's, <laughs> And the early parts of the learning don't work very well because you don't really know how to start and it crashes and, or you cook something and it tastes awful or you don't know how to do it or, you, you know, like I, you know, in my clinical work, people will look at me like some of them when I say you need to do something about the diet, like I'm about to run them over with a truck or deer in headlights or, you know, because I don't think they know where to start. Mm-hmm. Some other people don't have any problem with it. It's really interesting but i i think that we need to you know in the paper that i wrote that inspired you to call me time to get a grip i was saying we have to get a grip on the harmful things that are out there but i think we also have to get a grip on our daily habits and last summer i wrote a commentary for a special issue on autism that's free online it my article's in it also an article by liz mumper about her practice where she you know it's a small it's not massive, but she talks about how she has just about no autism. And she wrote it up. And the a journal is called North American Journal of Medical Science. It's a friend of mine runs it, Dr. June Kong, here at Harvard. And um, my article was called Everyday Epigenetics. Now, epigenetics, let I me mean just define this. So genetics is the code, the DNA. Epigenetics is about the way your body turns parts of it on and parts of it off, depending on what it's doing. Because there's no way you're going to use all those genes at one time. When you're a fetus and a baby, especially when you're a fetus, you have a lot of them going all at once because you're just building the system. Then when the system gets more stable, you have to grow it, and that requires... But so at different phases of life and also in different parts of the body, let's say your brain or your liver or your kidney, don't use the same subsets of genes. But there are some genes that get turned on when you engage in healthy activities like exercise, eating lots of vegetables with lots of different colors, uh, getting plenty of sleep. And there are other genes that get turned on when you eat junk food, when you don't get enough sleep, when you're stressed out of your mind, when you're upset, and so forth. And those are not healthy genes. Those lead to inflammation, and they put you at risk for things like cancer, obesity, diabetes. And in autism, we find that the kids are stressed out of their minds. They're very inflamed. They're a walking story of gene expression problems, and it's been shown that the biggest cluster of genes that's overexpressed in autism is neuroimmune and not these developmental problems. And these are things that we know enough about. We haven't proved that this is exactly what's needed in autism, but we do know across the board that doing healthier things, eating healthy food, high nutrient density food that I talk about at length in my book, that helps the genes to express in more health-promoting ways, including in the brain. Well, that's so that's really more, important to understand.
1: And a much more motivating reason to pay attention to what you put into your body than just, uh, you know, when you think about it, when people say things like a cellular level or that sort of thing, it tends to sort of go over everyone's head. But when you break it down like that and explain it, I find myself wanting to grab something very healthy to eat and turn on the right genes.
0: So, <laughs> so thank yeah, because you. Because um, it's a big deal and it's a lifetime commitment. And I, and this is why I tell people make every choice a healthy choice. A little cheating and a little cheating here, a little cheating there, it actually adds up. There's another concept that's a little complicated, but I'm going to try and explain it to you. I've been meaning to write it up and I haven't done it yet. But, so I'm going to just give it a shot and see where, where it goes. Well, let so, me do the mid-break
1: inter- yes. interruption for one second, and we're going to come back and you're going to do that. You are listening to a new spin on autism, Answers, and we're going to get some answers today. I'm Lynette Louise, your story teacher host, otherwise known as the Brain Broad. Um, we're going to... <laughs> Isn't that great? We're going to skip over entirely the okay, 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 great guest giveaway because we have a marvelous, wonderful guest today who we want to get every nugget she has to share. And it's Doctor Martha and I'm going to say her last name correctly this time, Herbert. Doctor Martha Herbert. And she is the author of The Autism Revolution and many, many, many professional articles. She's a brain researcher, a pediatric pediatric neurologist, and a fantastic woman because she thinks a lot like me, but much smarter and much more informed. So I always like that. It's sort of a Uh, you know, that attraction to sameness. Um, Hopefully we can spread some good stuff for you today. And I will, I promise you, I will come up with something at the end to put it all together and put a stamp on it so you never forget it in
0: Stories from the Road.
1: All right, she has something special to share. Let's get back to her. All right, Dr. Herbert, sorry for that. I just got to do it in the middle. Absolutely. (laughs)
0: Absolutely. Yeah, so right. I wanted to talk to you. It's funny you should have used the attraction word because what I wanted to talk about was this concept called the attractor state. And okay. if, so I'm going to have to paint a picture to you with words because we don't okay. have visual here. So in a system, there's a place that the system likes to be. And you can nudge it around, but it tends to gravitate back to that place. And if you think about it, we all have certain routines and ruts and habits and you try and shift your sleep schedule and you go back to the one you really like, or you know, you try a new habit, you go back. So there's a if you want to change an attractor state, it takes a lot of work. So people have drawn pictures of these attractor states, and imagine a picture of a landscape and there are hills and there are valleys and there are potholes. So if you have a ball rolling around in that landscape, it tends to go to the lowest places, and it'd like to be in a valley, but let's say it lands in a pothole. It's a deep hole. It takes a lot more work to get the ball out of the deep hole than it gets than it takes to move it around in a valley. Right? So, I think of autism as like falling into a deep hole. And many people, many of you listening this interview will have had the experience with your child with autism of having them out of the clear blue sky pop out of whatever state they're usually in and say something brilliant when they don't even usually talk or just be have these moments of clarity and brilliance and then it goes away and do you know what I mean by that?
1: Oh, my goodness, yes, I adopted four autistic kids. And I have one that's still a slow changer. Three are off the spectrum, but one is a slow changer and really hard to help. And when he was young, he could not speak. But I remember many times where we would all just stand there with our mouths open because his sister's taking the crayons and he goes, I can do it. no, you can't even say that.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. So... What that says is that the brain is actually in there perfectly capable, but there's just stuff in the way. And one of the things is what I talked about before, it doesn't have enough energy. But periodically you can generate it for a few moments, but you can't keep it up And when you're in that state. So you sort of pop out, but then you fall back in. So I think what we have to try and do is make the hole shallower, and get more energy into the system. So it can pop out and go really land somewhere else where it can stay better. And so the reason I say make every choice a healthy choice is that every time you make a healthy choice, you, you push, you make the hole a little shallower and you give the system more juice. But every time, excuse me, every time you make a not healthy choice, you slow that process down. And you don't want to do that because it's hard enough the way it is. And there's so many things pulling in, in directions that you don't want to go that you don't want to be adding to it on top of everything, all the toxics and the stresses and the noise and the air pollution and all the stuff that we have to put up with every day. So where you have the power, you should make every choice a healthy choice because it will make it closer and closer that the system, that your child's system can organize itself in a richer way than it is now. It'll get less stuck and more flexible. But that's why I it's so it. important.
1: Yeah, I love this analogy. In fact, I use a similar one with that old game you used to play with all the balls in, you know, and you'd have to try to get the balls into the little holes in your hand and kept you busy on the airplane. Um, for, <laughs> yeah. for a different point, but a similar kind of visual, I... Um, What's coming to my mind here is something that I see in home after home that I go into, and when I bring up this concept, this this kind of thinking, um, people are very confused as to what a healthy choice is in that there are so many poles on them. So these poor families are there, and they're going you know, okay, so we have to now eat perfectly healthy, and then they seek out what is perfectly healthy and what is the right kind of diet, and there's a million different diets to choose from, and now their their stress level has gone up to the point where they're like,
0: you cannot have that!
1: And I'm like, well, yeah, Yeah, but but that (laughs) racism.
0: Yeah, right. I mean, look, we have to do the best we can. I mean, a lot of successful clinicians, even though you want to build up to the optimal thing, the bottom line is we all learn by step by step. You don't go from being a baby and pop up and start playing soccer. I mean, it doesn't work like that. You have to go through this whole process. So there are certain basic things that, you know, if you wanted to just do one or two things just to get started, I would say, like, and some of them are hard. Some kids, it's harder than others. Like, cut out sugar. Sugar is an empty calorie. If a child wants sweets, You want to eventually reduce that, but give them fruit. Don't give them sugar. Give them things which have other nutrients. The difference between low nutrient density, which is junk food, and high nutrient density is that in a fruit, which is higher nutrient density, it comes with vitamins and minerals and phytonutrients that give it the color and and fiber, and it's not just sugar. When you have sugar, it's so imbalanced that your system really goes nuts. So at least switch from sugars to fruit. And it's better to eat the whole fruit than the fruit juice because then you've lost all the fiber. Um, That's something... The the kids who crave sugar, it's really an addictive thing, and they often have gut problems and attention problems and brain fog. If you can switch to fruit, that's a good start. Then at least they'll be getting minerals. And vitamins. And then um, move to vegetables. There's a whole series of things that you can do. But eliminating something as noxious as sugar is even there. That's good. And over time, as you make a gain, it will make it easier to make the next gain. So don't make yourself nuts because your kid needs you to be relaxed and needs you to love them just the way you are. They need it really a lot. Yeah. And you need it, too, because you need to feel like you can live with yourself and live with everything. And, you know, a lot of us are in the same boat. A lot of us have been hit. It's not just autism. It's a whole lot of other conditions. I was talking to a reporter the other day in Canada. She's saying that their obesity rate is hitting one in five. That's a disaster. Right. And, and right. it's the same underlying mechanism, more or less, at the metabolic level. They have the same kind of metabolic problems that the autistic kids do and the diabetes people, too, and it's very similar to cancer. And a lot of it is because we've been being force-fed. Companies, food processing companies have been force-feeding us stuff that's good for their bottom line, but it's not good for our health. I think my favorite
1: thing um, on this concept is what you were saying again about the epigenetics. I mean, I, I've often heard it broken down to, you know, the at least, Get the nutrient density. Get the, you know, this is good and this is bad and this helps you and this doesn't help you. And we've all heard vitamins and we've, we've all heard that. But to bring it all the way to the concept that as I'm eating the fruit versus the white sugar, I'm actually having a different effect on The gene expression, that is really, really um, exciting, I think, for people because it will make them feel much more like the changes they're making in the house can have a very substantial difference. I think it's
0: absolutely profound, and we could have a whole public health campaign about this. Another concept that's very simple, not so simple to implement, but you have to have it in your mind, is a German concept. I'll say it in German because that's where it got named, but then I'll say it in English. The German word is Zeitgeber. That means time giver. Zeit is time and geber is giver. And basically for probably 100 years, people have done research in Germany, finding that having a regular daily rhythm is really good for your health. What I found clinically, and I have to struggle with it myself, for various you know because of partly because I travel a lot, um, getting to bed relatively at, a, at a, a regular time is really, really good for you there 's lots and lots of research about this, and when you don 't do it it 's also hard on your gene expression. We know that kids with autism have a hard time sleeping. How do you help that well you can 't force anybody to sleep, but what you can do is start slowing things down in the evening. Absolutely no sugar. Sugar makes kids nuts, and then they won't go to sleep. Another thing is to turn off the electrical stuff and even unplug it so that the the TV, the, the iPad, all the gizmos, they're off. It, number one, it stimulates the eyes and the brain in a way that keeps you awake, so you want to turn it off. Right. And number two it's well known not well known but there's plenty of studies showing that electromagnetic frequencies interfere with sleep so trying to learn sleep hygiene as in you know or giving your kid an, an Epsom salt bath the magnesium sulfate from Epsom salt which is nice and cheap two cups of Epsom salt half a cup of baking soda put it in a warm bath keep them in there for 15 minutes they'll calm down they'll sleep better because the magnesium and the sulfate in the in the in the Epsom salt goes straight through the skin into the system, and they're very calming and also detox. That sulfate is your system really needs that sulfur. So, it helps
1: a lot of the kids even poop. I mean, it's like it, it's a great one. I use it all the time.
0: Right, and it's cheap. I have mm-hmm. that in my book too. It's one of my all-time favorite things. And um, so if you just take out sugar and regularize your daily routines, another thing is just when you go to the store, get your kids to pick out different color vegetables, even if they won't eat them. At least they'll start playing with the food and getting interested in it. And over time, they'll start trying a little bit of it. You can make smoothies. You can, if you have a Vitamix or a Blentec or something like that, you can make it so they don't have to chew on it. They're not always very good at chewing things properly. But as the more nutrients they get into them, the more their system's going to be able to reorganize itself to do things more elegantly, less kludgy, more elegant. That's awesome. Any other tips? Go on. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, so those are. I mean, but those, but so I work at the center in. I work. I consult for the center in the in um, the Catskills in. It's about 90 miles northwest of New York City, and it's a 1,500-acre residential facility for people with severe autism and medical frailties, and it was started 60 years ago by parents of kids with cerebral palsy, but as the autism rates have gone up, so has their autism population, relative to everybody else there. They have a 62-acre biodynamic organic farm, and that's what the kids who live there eat. So... Kids who come there are really a mess, but as they eat that diet, they really calm down a lot. A lot of the behaviors go away. They get a lot of... They're vigorous... They're, they're active at least 65% of the day, often vigorously active. They work in the, on the land. They really work hard on sleep hygiene, a regular bowel regimen, and, and teaching, which is really sensitive you know, to, to each individual. And... So I'm one of the scientists working with them to document this through research. And we just got an EEG machine. Helping, I'm helping them set up so we can actually measure even changes in the brain, as well as nutrition changes, stress changes, and exercise tolerance changes. If kids that severe can show improvement with that kind of a regimen, and they get there somewhat later, if you start earlier, it's even better. But at any point in life, you can change your epigenetics. That's what's so cool. It isn't hardwired. You can, if, if you have two identical twins and they have the same, same genes and one of them eats a really high nutrient density diet and exercises and the other one is a couch potato and eats junk food, one of them is going to get fatter, one of them is probably going to get cancer sooner, and it's all with the same genes. Right. Another another resource I can tell you about is there's a new institute started by Jeff Bland, who's the, the key founder of Functional Medicine. He started last year a new institute called the Personalized Lifestyle Medicine Institute, plminstitute.org. And he's really pushing how much we could do for health just with this. And, and this is, there was a story... There's an article in the New England Journal of Medicine a year and a half ago called What's Preventing Us from Preventing Type 2 Diabetes? We spend $750 billion a year treating diabetes when we already know that diet and exercise as lifestyle changes can prevent 58% of it at least, and yet we don't do lifestyle modification because the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid are not allowed to reimburse lifestyle coaches. Well, how irrational is that? So we wait for everybody to get really, really sick and have diabetes, and then we treat them instead of preventing it from happening in the first place. Well, that's nuts, but that's what we're doing. And but, So what I think is that until – I mean, I don't know when the government's going to get its act together or what, but there's a lot that we can do as individuals and as a social movement – and I'm working on a project which I will announce in, in, in the next six months really to help help scale this on a population on a community and population scale and collect information about what we're doing because I really think it's we're like we're kinda on our own and we've gotta mobilize what needs to happen together. I really want to love... really get it yeah I
1: really love that you 're brought up um, that we didn 't just stay only talking about autism that you brought up uh, cerebral palsy and you brought up diabetes and you brought um, that 's one of the reasons uh, I have a my new book out is about a child who had cerebral palsy as opposed to just talking about autism all the time. Because when I move around, uh, the, brain the brain is the brain is the brain is the brain, the body is the body is the body is the body, and it's, it, when we isolate, one of the problems in Western thinking is we isolate everything to get a good look at it, but then we forget to notice that actually it's our entire, uh, it's humanity that is actually being affected in so many different ways about, by many of the same things. That's right. And, and it's important to see the whole picture every once in a while before you, you know, microscope down and, and look yeah, at your Yeah, I mean, the, the
0: problem is the funding right now and research is still tied up in that, in that microscope thing, and that's why I think we need social movements. One thing I wanted to mention before we run out of time is that um, in my book, in Chapter 8, I have a, I have a box on someone um, in California named Anat Baniel, who's written a couple of books, one of them. Yeah, we've spoken with her. Yeah. Oh, you have great yeah. so yeah, so anyway, I interviewed her for my book, and then I was so blown away I signed up for her training and i 'm just let the you know at the end of the month i 'm going to finish my children 's mastery training, and so i 've been working with her for three years now, and i 'm helping her set up a research program because she does such remarkable work not only with autism but with cerebral palsy, brain damage people all through the lifespan, as well as high functioning athletes and musicians and so forth to to up their game. And I can tell you that my own, the elegance and efficiency of my own movement, and I wasn't too bad before, but whoa, has it improved. And um, it's a real foundational way of learning how to put the little pieces together so that you can really help a person learn. And I think it's a very, very important component of improving and changing the attractor state of a person. Because how we use our bodies, how we relate to gravity, it takes up so much real estate in the brain that when you improve that, it cascades over and spills out over into all kinds of other functions. So I really recommend that people read Anat Banyel's book, Kids Beyond Limits, because it's so helpful in getting you to a place of real, loving, kind, mindful awareness to help your child be the best they can in the most effective way and not to put things in the way just because you're anxious. Get, get the anxiety out of the way and, and do a better job. The Kids Beyond Limits book is one of the best things I've read to help you understand how to do that. That's awesome. All right.
1: So we are, unfortunately, at the end of our time because really we could just pick your brain forever. Um, Dr. Herbert, is there anything that you want to mention at the end here, a a little gem of advice, and please, uh, one more time, your contact info for everybody?
0: Sure. So, Well, let me just say you can read my book, The Autism Revolution, Whole Body Strategies for Making Life All It Can Be. The website for the book is autismrevolution.org. A companion website is autismwhyandhow.org. If you sign up for my newsletters, I don't send out much, but I will be sending out some things in the reasonably near future, so you'll be on the list. And then my personal website, MarthaHerbert.org. And I think I'll just say again, make every choice a healthy choice and be, you know, understand that we're all in this together and uh, you didn't do anything wrong, that we've been given a lot of misinformation. And we need to create new information on the basis of of regenerating our ability to live healthfully, each one of us, each family and the communities and the planet. And we're all in it together in terms of figuring out not only how to solve our own problems, but every solution we find helps the rest of us move along. So you're really in something bigger than just your own thing, even though every day you still have to deal with your personal details. But it, we're all in this together.
1: Thank you. And thank you so much for giving us time. I really appreciate it.
0: My pleasure.
1: And that was Dr. Martha Herbert. She's an MD and a PhD. La, da, da. I wish I could be that educated. No, not really. I love who I am, but I love who she is too. She's a magnificent guest. Um, you got lots of tips, but you'll get even more if you check out the link that I'm going to put into the little website area that describes this show on our podcast Um, i'm going to put a link into her 10 tips that come from the body of the book the autism revolution and so you really do want to click on that link get those 10 tips all right promise 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 that you're going to make this a tangible thing for y'all
0: okay
1: it is time for
0: stories from
1: All right, so I'm trying to think of how can I really support this concept of an entire system getting sick—the system of the earth, the system of humanity, the system of each individual family or 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 group, like you know, the system of the country, the system of the city, the system—and then eventually we get down to the system of that particular child, and not overwhelm you, but at the same time really stamp how important it is to realize, A, you're not alone, everybody's struggling with this, and how is it possible that what seems to not be um, making me sick is making the person beside me sick? And I think that uh, Dr. Herbert really did explain it nicely. So what I would like to do is just tell you a little story that will Make it personal and make you feel empowered, not overwhelmed by the world you live in that says, Oh my gosh, there's just too much to do. I can't even imagine it. Give me the Cheetos. Ew. (laughs) Don't eat, please, don't eat Cheetos. On the overwhelming front, when you look at your child and you look at their myriad of behaviors and you see their hands flap and the noise they're making and, and the repetitive walking back and forth perhaps or they're just sitting in the corner and staring out, they're not responding to my name, the, uh, if only I could get eye contact more, more often. Why do they pull away or stick their head down when I go to hug them? Because their chest is maybe too sensitive. Why is their chest too sensitive? Why can't their hands open up properly? Why is their fine motor so bad? Why can't they hold their pencil? Why can't they write their name? Why can't they? And your brain goes, and you're you're seeing, so we're just on the one child and the one system and we're going, oh my gosh, and they can't and they can't and they can't and they can't and you think to yourself, if only I could make their hands be still, they'd be normal because you're picking something. But you're picking a sort you're picking something that isn't fundamental but is instead a reaction to what's fundamentally going on. Sometimes we just have to pick something fine, I get it just to to be in action, and so we should, so that we feel better, so that we have better energy, so that we have better focus, so that we are kinder, gentle souls with our children. Whatever you pick is fine in that sense, but if what you're tr- saying to your child is, um, you know, there's something wrong with the way you operate, I have to stop you, that is going to turn on... That by itself, that action, is going to turn on or turn up the stress, turn on the wrong genes, and you are just going to further the problem. So stop for a second, take a deep breath, and think, how can I reach into the core of who this child is? So, the story. I was working with this um, young boy, he's about seven, extremely uh, aggressive everyone was a bit afraid of him and um you know i i took a few shots myself and had some bruised arms and things as i made it through day two and by day three we were best buddies um he was really just adorable but he would get into this all of a sudden reaction that would just create an outburst almost like an anger seizure and so that was my Concerned to first check and make sure that that wasn't what was happening, and you know, tried a variety of different things. And um, in his case, it appeared that he was having this sort of overall body reaction to the word now. And you know, I've come across that many times where there's a particular word that's been used in a particular fashion um, and has become a trigger word for behavior. And when you say that word, then all of a sudden, bam. The child is somewhere else. There's no traveling to that place. They're just there. Almost like two entangled, uh, <laughs> electrons showing up in the same, in different places at the same time. You know, there's no, no need to go to anger and the desire to attack you. He's there as the word no comes out your mouth. And so, you know, I, noticed this correlation and so started shaping, certainly didn't stop saying no, but stopped using the word itself and started putting uh, negative sentences, not, not to be negative with the child, but to be able to put boundaries down. So, you know, say things like, well, um, the reason that that won't work is, therefore, it's better not to do it, so let's do this, um, saying things like that. And... And so I started to approach him this way and, and change the way I was triggering his entire system to flip the, the switches and be suddenly in attack mode. And I was doing the same thing with the neurofeedback, and we were talking about diet and you know the things that he was driven to eat, and he was driven to eat sugar. So I think it's a good story to use because uh, we were talking with Dr. Herbert about sugar and, and it's, some of its effects. And this child had strong, strong, strong cravings for sugar. And so whenever they were trying to help him or calm him down, they'd say, oh, he needs sugar. And not thinking about knowing that he was doing sugar drops and rises, but not thinking about the way they were feeding that particular uh, rise and fall, rise and fall. And so you can think of it in a simpler way as the Starbucks Starbucks addiction. You know, if a person has uh, their coffee to get their energy, when their coffee wears off, they crash. Or you can think of it like cocaine, you know, when they have their cocaine and, and that keeps the dopamine around. The next thing you know, that wears off and then you crash. Whatever you do to Burst yourself to really really burst yourself is going to draw on different parts of your system um, in different ways to get that energy to immediately work with you, but you will run out and so then you 'll have to feed it more and then you 'll burst and then you 'll run out and then you 'll have to feed it more and that 's a sort of the concept of the simple sugar problem in a, you know in a small nutshell. And so here I have this this boy who the word no inflames him dramatically, even if he's had some sugar. <laughs> but he's also in this sugar rise and fall and rise and fall and rise and fall, which often leads kids to... Um, to be, you know, in, in this place where they're completely distraught, and then they get some more sugar, and this is no different than, say, a diabetic swing, where that person is all of a sudden in need of sugar, and they start to be angry, and uh, it doesn't always go to anger. Each individual expresses this differently, but often they all of a sudden are rude, almost sound like they have Tourette's, and um, and so what you're wanting to realize is that this little boy was stuck in a bunch of loops. He was stuck in the sugar loop where he would get this rise and fall and rise and fall. So he's always going from one emotion to another, uh, one focus ability to another, one energy ability to another based on what's happening in his diet. He's become sensitized to this one particular word, possibly because he heard the word no originally at a time when his energy was falling and he was really sensitive and he started to pair it with losing control of his self um, just like the sugar drops out and makes him lose control of himself, self. Regardless of why, he's he's got a bunch of things that are now forcing him, <laughs> without his even thinking about it, to attack you and want to scratch your face, which isn't a really fun thing to have happen when you're trying to be loving and playful with someone. And so we started looking at the wholeness of the situation the you know the ways in which the family was running in with the sugar to save them the ways in which people were avoiding the word no to to not um, have him attack or overusing it to desensitize him, and and in both cases um, signaling that the word no is powerful and you can't handle it, <laughs> and and so reinforcing it, and it, it was a large system in a family that was trying very hard to love their child but getting very bruised and very hurt and very scratched and very bitten, and um, and so this young man needed sort of a holistic approach, as do all of us. And, you know, I started with a little neurofeedback and talked them into that and and had them switch the foods uh, and make it into the, instead of the simple sugars, the more complex ones. And, and we just sort of moved things along the continuum that Dr. Herbert was talking about. And so it was really nice to hear her discuss it. Um, but the fastest thing I did was really work with this word "no" that it become the trigger and find other ways of approaching it. And why I'm picking this story is because I discovered something when working with this child at a more profound level than I had known it before. And that's what I now teach everywhere. One of the things I now teach everywhere is explain, explain, explain. Put more words in. It's the opposite of what everyone else is saying. Um, you know, if, don't say too much, just Put it in its couple of words, so they can hear the direction, and I agree with that i I believe that you do simplify it, but first you explain it and the reason is that it's multiple like it's it's a it's a, again a system approach in that when I put more words in and I say something like well the, you know the reason that that's not as good is, and I start to explain it, my tone is different. My feeling about myself is different. My feeling about the words I'm expressing are different. My feeling about the child who's listening is different. Why? Because I don't talk that way to someone I don't think has a brain. I don't talk that way in that lilting, uh, explanational style to someone that I think is just going to attack me. I talk that way with a friend. I talk that way with someone I respect. I talk that way with someone I think is listening, not someone I think is ignoring me. So when I talk that way, I signal to them and me that they are listening, even if it's just in my tone and in my countenance. And some of those words may, it's true, just be sort of floating around and not landing, but that's okay because I'm going to simplify it at the end. So this child, who was so attack-oriented, who had such a huge number of problems and who we got through uh, most of these problems, and he's still on the learning curve but isn't aggressive anymore, uh, and, and is lovely, <laughs> lovely in many, many ways and quite bright. Uh, he, he taught me something awesome. He taught me to speak in this bigger, more inclusive, more informative way. And that mirrors the idea of what the children teach us, what they're bringing to us. Um, the system, the the way in which these problems out in the world can just be problems we reinforce or problems we begin to solve by seeing it holistically and then just choosing something to begin with. And so they do truly become sort of the tornado that came in and said, hey, you have to pay attention to me because if you don't pay attention to me, it's going to get worse. But if you pay attention to me, I might demolish everything, but you will rebuild it, and you'll have an opportunity to rebuild it in a healthier way. And maybe that's the gift that autism brings. And I know I've used the tornado analogy before, but it really fits here. We need to break down the system and build it up fresh. And you have to do that um, simultaneous to helping. So it's only overwhelming if you stay looking at the big picture, Look at the big picture, get a sense of it, and then get down into the little stuff and work there for a little bit, and then back away again, look at the big picture. And that's how I did it with this young man, Um, and he is just gorgeous. And thank you. Thank you for listening today. Thank you for being with myself and Dr. Herbert. She was just wonderful. Um, And this is a new spin on autism. Answers. I'm Lynette Louise, your story teacher host, otherwise known as the Brain Broad. to myself, spinning in circles and talking to myself, I can't hear you.